Well, good morning again, and let me uh, invite you to open a Bible and turn there to uh, Esther chapter 3. We are continuing our way through the Old Testament book of Esther, and uh, <clears throat> I believe it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, Esther chapter 3, let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned at the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the best interest, the king's best interest, to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the, other noble, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. This is the word of God. Let's take a minute to pray. Our Father, we uh, give you thanks for this, your word, and we pray that uh, you would, by your spirit, open our eyes and enlighten our hearts to 
know what it is you uh, th- this means what and what it is you have spoken and how you are even now uh, bringing this truth to, to light and to bear upon our minds, hearts, souls, lives. Uh, help it to guide us, to challenge us, to instruct us, to give us encouragement and hope and strength in Christ. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was young, my mom, as a hobby, did a lot of uh, cross-stitching. And in fact, we still have a number of these, um, some of them rather large uh, cross-stitches, whatever you call it, hanging in our our home. And uh, I remember uh, when I was, uh, you know, you know, I remember watching her at times doing this and noticing, and if you're familiar with it or any kind of really weaving tapestry type thing, uh, the front looks very much different than the back. And I remember watching her as she'd be uh, stitching this and flipping it over from front to back, that when you view it from the back, sometimes you can tell what it is, but it doesn't look particularly skillful or beautiful. And other times, you can't tell what it is. It just sort of looks like a jumbled mess that you can't make out the design. But either way, viewed from the back, uh, it's not really something you'd hang on the wall. Not really something that would uh, inspire the viewer with the skill or, or artistry of the artist. There's lots of uh, loose ends just hanging there, going nowhere with no very apparent purpose. There's lots of stray threads that seem out of place and like they don't connect and fit into the larger picture. And there's lots of knots that are just kind of ugly knots. And when you view it from the back side, it doesn't always make a lot of sense. It doesn't often seem to have any coherence or design or order to it at all. It looks messy, chaotic, random. And the viewer is left uninspired and maybe even confused. When you turn it over and view it from the front, it all comes together. When you turn it over and view it from the front, all those loose ends and stray threads and knots, all of them aren't without purpose or out of place, but each thread is brought together in just the right place, just where it needs to be to make a thing of beauty and coherence and artistry and skill to show the, the purpose and design of the, of, of the one who weaved them all together to leave the viewer in awe of that, of that skill and beauty of the grand design of the whole thing. And that backside view is, a lo- is sort of like how we see life in this life. Life viewed from our perspective, how we can sometimes see the events and circumstances of this life, but the front side view is how God sees it. And in fact, there was an author, uh, Corey Ten Boom, who wrote a poem about something very similar, about weaving a tapestry on a loom called God's Tapestry. I, I don't know if I've ever read poetry during a sermon or not, but here it is. This is the... 
God's tapestry. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas to reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemn. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. You see, one day... We will see things from God's perspective. In this life, we can sometimes see things in a limited and imperfect way from his perspective. But often in this life, we're left looking at the back side of it all, where there's stray threads, uh, loose ends, and knots. We're left wondering why, and often in faith, simply needing to accept the circumstances of life that are unideal, that are unfair, that are unjust, that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, but that maybe simply came upon us, or maybe that we chose or contributed to through our own actions, and now are the reality in which we live. Faith means viewing those things from God's perspective, trusting That though we can't see it, though we can't see it all, though we can't see it fully, God has a purpose in it all. Trusting that he somehow is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And that doesn't mean that everything that happens to us in life will in itself be good. It doesn't mean that the life we live will be the best possible life there could be. But it means that whatever circumstances we face, we trust that our circumstances, our choices, our lives are threads in the hands of a master weaver who sees it all and knows what he's doing in and through it all and is able to work it all together towards something unthinkably beautiful, worshipfully beautiful. The good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's working it all together for something beautiful, and he's working it all together for our good and for his good purposes for us. And so we trust that that's ultimately behind the events and circumstances of this life, right? We trust that fate or luck, or coincidence, or even human decision-making for good or bad, or human scheming for good or evil, those are not the ultimate force driving the circumstances of life, but what's ultimately behind everything is God's power and plan and purpose behind the events of human history to bring it all along according to his grand and beautiful design, such that in the words of Joseph, From the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph, who endured uh, great and senseless evil and trusted God through it, and later on 
in his life could look back on it and say, that which you intended for evil, God intended it for good. He doesn't say it wasn't evil, but he says that behind the evil schemings of wicked people, there was a greater force at work, bringing it together into something wonderful. God's plan to bring about the salvation of many. That's the, I, I mentioned in our first sermon, chapter one of Esther, that's, I think, the, the main point of the book of Esther. And that main point is told in, through all the stories, so it's something that we're going to keep coming back to, but I don't, I'm not going to apologize for that. Who, who doesn't need to hear that more? Who doesn't need to be reminded of God's good providence over our lives and God's good purposes in our lives. And that's what we saw, we see in the book. We saw last week, uh, remember, we, we saw the evil of Esther being swept up into the life of the king's harem. And whatever decision she may or may not have had in that, in that process or circumstance, it's probably likely that she wouldn't have chosen that for herself. Maybe it disrupted dreams she had for her own life. But that's her circumstance now. And we begin to see, and we'll see even more fully as the story develops, that even in that ugly circumstance was God's purpose at work to bring about something good, to bring about the deliverance of many people. We saw last week, we saw this a little bit with Mordecai, who Mordecai, remember, he acts as a loyal and dutiful citizen, and he, you know, seemingly has some position in the civil government, and he is a, a, a good civil servant. Uh, he saves the king's life. He uncovers this plot of assassination against the king. He uh, lets, gets word to Esther. Esther lets the king know. He saves the king's life. And um, you expect, and especially knowing uh, the reputation of Persian kings, to uh, generously reward people who do them a favor. Uh, you expect the king to do Mordecai a favor, and that doesn't happen. And so um, instead... Here in chapter 3 now, for an unexplained reason, we see that Haman, who we discover is through and through just an evil guy, bad guy, he's rewarded. And seeming, you know, and it, it, it's put in the narrative, it's put back to back to show that Haman gets rewarded undeservedly, un seemingly. Mordecai deserve to be rewarded and doesn't get rewarded. And you sort of are forced to see the, the irony of that. And uh, Mordecai was Xerxes' rescuer from death. And now, as the story develops more, he and his people become the target of death from the very one he rescued from death. And so it's, you know, summarize that. It's unfair. It's unjust. And it really is. But isn't that what life is like sometimes? And the Bible recognizes that and sympathizes with that reality that you do the right thing. Like Mordecai did. You do all the right things. <laughs> and you don't get the reward that you ought to get. Things don't go well for you as they ought to 
In fact, you get injustice instead, while those who live wickedly seem to triumph and win over everything, right? Isn't life like that sometimes? But had Esther and Mordecai not uh, experienced those unideal circumstances, they would not have been in the position to rescue God's people. Had Mordecai been rewarded at the right time in the right way, he wouldn't have been able to later receive that delayed reward that put him, uh, that, that spared him from Haman's uh, scheming and that made him to be this crucial link in the deliverance of God's people. And we'll see that, that part when we get to that part in the story. But you see how in all of it, God's providence is at work. And when you look at it from one side, before the completion of the story, you see a lot of uh, knots and loose, hang, loose ends and stray threads that seem uh, messy and perplexing from our perspective. But nevertheless, all these threads are brought together. For God, and, and through it, God brings about his good work and his good plan for his good purposes, even through great evil and injustice. And so here we see uh, the, the, that this idea for, go further developed and the, the plot uh, thickens, so to speak, as the, the, um, the main part of the crisis comes about where Mordecai now finds himself in a situation where his confrontation with Haman escalates into this threat of genocide for his entire people group, all because he wouldn't bow down to Haman, right? And it's a little odd, really, uh, because this, it, what this was not a matter of, it, it wasn't uh, any kind of religious worship at stake. This wasn't like refusing to bow down and worship Haman as a, a god. It wasn't refusing to bow down and worship an idol. It was simply in that day an act of respect for someone high in office. And not only that, it, in this specific instance, it was a command of the king. And, and Mordecai, who had been seeming so loyal to the king, now is uh, refusing to bow down to Haman, and we're left wondering why again. <laughs> uh, especially, you know, as I said, he's been loyal to the king previously, and especially when his previous advice to Esther seemed to be all to the contrary of what Mordecai does here. To Esther, he tells her, keep your, ident- your ethnicity secret and blend in. <laughs> and here, he makes his identity known and sticks out. And his refusal to bow then becomes this spark that sets the whole crisis aflame. And we don't really know why he doesn't, for sure. We're given some hints we'll get to. But there's no clear motive assigned to Mordecai's refusal to bow. And there's no direct explanation for his behavior. And even though Mordecai is consistently portrayed very positively in the book... Maybe that gives us a hint. There's still not a really clear, explicit evaluation as to whether this is righteous or foolish behavior done out of conviction or some kind of stubbornness. Uh, And probably that just wasn't really the author's point here. And the point is 
that this personal confrontation between two people turns into a battle between two opposing kingdoms. And it points to the reality of an age-old conflict between the people of God and this sinful, rebellious world. Between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between the reign of Christ and the, uh, the rebellion of Antichrist. It's an age-old conflict that has and will continue until the end of history. And the people of God, for their loyalty to God, find themselves bound up in this conflict. It's hinted at in verse 4, we see that something, uh, something to do with Mordecai's situation has to do with his, his Jewishness and some kind of anti-Jewish sentiment and that's reinforced uh, as we see uh, Haman, you know, uh, that, you know, just killing Mordecai would be, you know, not enough. So he's got to go after all of uh, Mordecai, Mordecai's people. But it's reinforced mostly by the way that Mordecai and Haman are introduced. Back in chapter 2, we saw that Mordecai was introduced as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish. So a Jew, the tribe of Benjamin, son of Kish. King Saul in the Old Testament was also a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin and also the son of Kish. And so we have that in our minds. That's who Mordecai is. And then Haman now in chapter 3 is introduced in verse 1 as the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the days of King Saul. And so uh, Agag, king of the Amalekites, has been brought to mind in Haman. And King Saul has been brought to mind in uh, Mordecai. And the Amalekites, that's significant because they were age-old and uh, notorious enemies of the people of God. In fact, they were the first people to attack God's newly formed covenant people after he brought them out of Egypt. And as a result, God promised that there would be perpetual warfare between them until their names were blotted out from heaven. And so Amalek and Agag uh, became to be uh, used for names that were uh, stand-ins to denote someone who was an enemy of God's people. And Haman, throughout the rest of the book of Esther, if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Throughout the book, he is alternatively referred to as Haman the Agagite, or Haman the enemy of the Jews, or both. And so the idea is that Agagite really is a a synonymous to enemy of God's people. He is portrayed as, uh, as the, the preeminent enemy of God's people. And Saul made war with the Amalekites and destroyed them, but King Agag, he took captive instead of destroying him. Samuel later put him to death. But whereas, so the, the idea I think we're reminded of is that whereas Saul, son of Kish the Benjamite, sort of caved to Agag in a sense. 
Mordecai, son of Kish, the Benjamite, stands firm against him. And so these two people then are sort of the focal points of a bigger conflict. And their confrontation then is symbolic of and reminiscent of and pointing towards a a bigger conflict, a long-standing conflict, the ultimate conflict between God's people and those who set themselves up in opposition against God's people and ultimately between God himself and Satan. And this didn't just start with the Amalekites, of course. It started all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter uh, 3, where the serpent opposed God with a vicious lie and sought to turn God's people against him through deception. And in Genesis chapter 3, God responded to that by promising two things. First, that there would be uh, continued hostility and conflict to continue between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent until the day when the, the second promise, the serpent would crush, uh, the, 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 the offspring of Eve, excuse me, would crush the serpent's head in victory. And then immediately after that in Genesis chapters 4 and 5, you see this traced out in that uh, you see those who live as the descendants of the serpent, the seed of the serpent walking in the ways of his deceit and rebellion and evil, contrasted with the other uh, line, the descendants of the, the, the woman who call upon God, who walk with God, who live by faith in God. And that continues all throughout the Old Testament. And it continues all into the New Covenant, where we, the New Covenant people of God, are the inheritors of that promise of conflict, but also that promise of victory. We, who are still engaged in that battle with the serpent as his Uh, deadly lie and deception and rebellion against God and God's people continue in this world and will continue until the very end of history, all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And in the book of Revelation, where it's not only about the future from our perspective or the perspective of the original audience, but it's it's about the present from the perspective of all God's people living until Jesus' return, that what that present is going to be characterized no matter what part of history within that age from Jesus' ascension till his return, no matter where you find yourself to be, what you can know that it will be characterized by is conflict and hostility and persecution. And it's doing that in order to prepare us for what life will be like when we live as followers of Christ in this world. That there will be a battle. That we are in a battle. But, and here's the the future part of Revelation, Christ will bring about his final victory. And we'll be partakers of it. And let's just look at, back to Esther chapter 3, let's look at how this plays out here. We get, in Haman and Xerxes here, we get a very, uh, it's very disturbing, right? 
It's a disturbing picture of what happens when evil meets indifference. Haman is just a picture of unmitigated evil. He's just evil, who's enraged because of his own prideful arrogance that is offended by one person not bowing down before him, compounded by what seems to be racial prejudice and hatred, such that he escalates this personal conflict into a a plot for empire-wide genocide through deceitful manipulation of the king. Unmitigated evil meets calloused indifference. Xerxes is just portrayed as indifferent and uh, too too, uh, self-absorbed to be too preoccupied with this uh, genocide that he gives the, 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 the authority to be carried out. Throughout, King Xerxes is sort of like a a pushover in the book of Esther where everything he does and, and uh, is done to this point at the prompting of bad self-serving advice by the people around him. And here, so here, without even learning all the facts, without even taking the time or care to learn the people group targeted, without caring enough to be bothered to investigate anything further, He casually and nonchalantly allows it to happen and provides his authority and the means to do it, happily turns a blind eye to it with with the help of his vain pride and the greasing of the wheels of a handsome bribe. Uh, You know, Haman offers this huge bribe and the king saying, keep the money, I I think it's probably not him declining it, but it's his discreet and polite way of uh, accepting it, but at the same time allowing Haman to use it uh, at his disposal to fund his uh, schemes here. And we look at the end of the chapter then, where this decree goes out. They doom a whole people group to annihilation, young and old, women and children, and then they sit down and have a drink while all the population around are bewildered. Unmitigated evil meets calloused indifference. And we are the inheritors of that conflict as the new covenant people of God. We are still engaged in a battle that will continue until the end of history, but we know how the story ends, right? We know how the story ends. Jesus has decisively defeated Satan, dealt the death blow, and given the death sentence through his death on the cross and resurrection, but he still rages, and we still have a battle left to fight. Until Jesus comes again to bring his complete and final victory. And so what that means is in this life, as we live as God's people, we will face hostility and persecution and rejection in this world. And uh, back to Haman's pitch to Xerxes uh, for his plot, all he had to do was appeal a little bit uh, to Xerxes' self Interest and uh, he pitches this with uh, some unexceptional truths 
You know, saying that there's this people group that have their own customs, that was nothing exceptional in the Persian kingdom. That was true, but unexceptional. Misleading half-truths that finally outright slanderous lies in verse 8 because he accuses these people of not obeying the king's laws, which is not true, uh, but he says it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. And so just to pause there, this is uh, very similar then to the reason that um, we, we saw back in the book of Ezra that the enemies of God's people used to get the rebuilding work halted, that they uh, accused them falsely of being rebellious, treacherous traitors who aren't good for society. And though it's not true, the powers, to, uh, uh, the powers that be believed it to be so and thought it enough to persecute them as a result. And I think, I think I might have, we might have talked about this in our Nehemiah series, but it's a good reminder to us that, you know, even when we seek to be a good earthly citizen uh, in whatever worldly empire we live in, oftentimes when we live as followers of Christ, even that won't be enough and will be deemed unfit for good society, and the results can be costly. And Christians in many places in the world face those very costly results on a daily basis. And for Christians here, that's something we need to understand and embrace if we're to follow Christ faithfully. But we know how the story ends. And it's knowing how the story ends that enables, that gives us the strength to persevere in faithfulness now in the present, right? In this life, though we may suffer for our faith, though some may die for their faith, nevertheless, they know the end of the story. They know that there is a greater power at work than all the might of the kingdoms of this world that may bend their might against us. That there's a greater power at work in this world even than the great adversary, Satan, who is behind all of that. A greater power, God's power, is at work protecting, preserving, and delivering his people in love and holding them safe for eternity. Even when the enemy threatens us and even when the circumstances of life are uncertain. We know that nothing in all this world can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we know that when Jesus, our Savior, holds on to us in his mighty power and in his uh, inexhaustible love, that nothing can pry us out of his hand. And when we look to our Savior, even though... We remember on the cross, even though Satan through wicked, evil men sought to destroy him, we remember there that a greater power was at work to bring about the greatest good, our eternal salvation and God's eternal victory. Knowing the end of the story, even when we don't know all the the details of our circumstances. You know, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of that day didn't know how their particular story would end. We don't know the ending of our particular stories, but we know the end of the, the big story, right? 
And knowing the end gives us the enabling strength to stand firm and persevere in the present. Even when it's uncertain, even when it's filled with fear, we, by faith, keep that light before our eyes, even when the darkness seems to cover and surround us. Another irony is that Haman casts lots, essentially like rolling dice, to determine the luckiest day, the most fortunate day for this decree, terrible decree to be carried out. He has to wait 11 months uh, based on the rolling of the, the casting of the lots. That delay, waiting for, to, for the luckiest day chosen by the fate of the dice, allows the needed time for God's deliverance to be worked out and is a reminder of God's sovereignty and providence through it all. And the decree that's sent out on the 13th day of the first month happens to be, that happens to be the day before the Jewish Passover celebration, which is the day celebrating God's deliverance of his people, his miraculous and mighty deliverance of his people from Egypt and his founding of this people as his people. And it celebrates their special relationship to God and remembers his precious promises to them. It's on that day, just before that day, but just before that celebration, that they will receive this edict that they're going to be blotted out. And the question that it would bring to mind is, on this Passover, when God's people are in exile for their sins, will their enemies, and their enemies are plotting in full force against them, will God still be faithful? Will God still be faithful on this Passover as he was on that Passover. And we, the readers of the story, know that the answer is yes. Yes, he will still deliver his people. Yes, he will still be faithful to his promises. And not the fate of the dice or the power of the empire can defeat God's plan and promises. And we have an even greater assurance of God's eternal faithfulness to us because he has given us his very son to secure us as his very own children by the death of Christ on the cross. And it's in that that we have life. We are made God's children forever. And we can know and trust. We've seen his faithfulness already. And we can know and trust his continued faithfulness until the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that we have your promises and that we know that no matter what we face in this life, you will be faithful and you will raise us up to glory on the last day that nothing in all this world can separate us from your love and that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. Help us to live by faith in those promises even in dark times in this life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.